Welcome to episode 211 of Live Happy Now. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, thanking you for joining us today. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, you already know that we're fond of talking about work. But this week, we're taking a slightly different approach to the topic. As founder and board chair of the Skis Family Foundation, Suzanne Skis has worked in developing countries to support innovative education and job creation programs. She has compiled the stories of the fascinating people she has met around the world into a book series called My Job, People at Work Around the World. She says that along the way, she's learned a lot about the way our jobs affect us and what we can learn from them. Suzanne, thank you for joining us on Live Happy Now. It's really a pleasure to have you as a guest today. I'm happy to be here. Well, I think a great place for us to start is for you to tell us, first of all, what the Skis Foundation is all about. We call ourselves the world's tiniest charitable foundation with the mightiest ambition to end poverty around the world in, within our lifetime. We come with the premise that there are enough resources for all, but that equal opportunity for all is not being implemented. We really are, in terms of our budget and our staff size, tiny. We're always the smallest in the room. It's most, it's all family. A couple of family are working as part-time staff members and the rest of us are just volunteers on the board or helping with events or grant partner selection. But our specialty over time, we've been around for 15 years And we've come to realize that to end poverty, it's not about giving out food. You have to, of course, relieve human beings of disaster and hunger in the moment. But long term, in order to achieve sustainable change, you need to work on systems change. And two very simple ways we feel to do that are through education and jobs. You give someone a chance to study a skill or study toward a degree That's something they'll have for the rest of their lives. And then conversely, if they have the education but nothing to do with it, for example, in places in the U.S. and elsewhere that have pockets of huge unemployment, then you need to create jobs in order to employ these uh, newly skilled workers or even unskilled workers. So schools and jobs, those are our niches. We work with very, very young startups who are looking at a different sort of innovative way to solve an old social problem. Often with young social entrepreneurs, we work about 85% outside the U.S. and 15% in our own backyards, believing very, very fiercely that all humans are created equal and all deserve the chance to build a life of self-determination and freedom. That's an incredible mission, and it's as you said, it's very ambitious. And one thing that you have done, you've you've written your second book in the My Job series. So obviously that speaks to the job portion of your mission. Can you talk about what the My Job series of books is and then why? tell me why you launched it? Mm-hmm. We are just such ordinary middle-class Americans. It's funny if you saw, you could go to our board page and you'd see myself and my mom and my sisters and my nieces. And there are 40 family members across three generations from ages nine to 91. But guess what? We're all working people ourselves. And we feel like we're just trying to help in whatever small way we can, right? So because we didn't have really sharp MBAs, people with graduate degrees in international development on the board, what we did have was 
in the early days, I had a background in journalism and writing and editing. So this sort of morphed into supporting our partners by writing about them. And oftentimes they were creating jobs or giving microloans for people to be able to start or build small businesses. So I was writing hundreds and hundreds of stories about these unsung heroes ending poverty through the toil of their own hands and the creativity of their own minds. And it occurred to me that these stories could be linked together into a book and that if you balance them out with stories of people working for some of the huge companies like Xerox and Google and wealth investment companies, that it could be quite entertaining to look at the range of jobs from, say, a banana farmer in Uganda to a wealth equity manager in Hong Kong to uh, a woman who teaches teenage girls to ride horses in Kentucky to get them out of risk and through high school, to look at all kinds of jobs that maybe I've never had exposure to, maybe you haven't either. We're living in a time where geography still really matters in terms of our careers, where we grew up, what options we have is still quite distinct, but because of telecommunications, we can learn about each other. So the stories I was writing morphed into this book series, which features people from our partner programs, but also people from the dot-com side of industry. And it's just a continuation. It's sort of a a call back to Studs Terkel's best-selling book from 1974, Working. So is it just a series of stories? Can you kind of tell the listeners what, what they can expect to, when they pick up this book? That's right. So each book has 15 chapters, and they're each narrated by that person. In this case, I felt strongly that my mission was not to tell their story for them, but to listen. So... I would interview a person just like you're doing with me now and record it and then edit the chapter, rearrange the content sometimes. And so my personal job was to take the stories of the My Job book series and arrange them into a beautiful mosaic of who is this person, but retain their own words. So a reader just told me a couple of days ago that she's she's immersed in my job book two. And she says, you know, I feel like when I'm reading a chapter, I'm sitting with that person and they're telling me their story one on one. Wow, the that's stories- a huge compliment when you can actually put yourself and the reader in their shoes. That's an in- incredible feat. Thank you. So what I do as the editor is just to frame the story. So, and I I could go on and on and on about these narrators because they're amazing people, but I've restrained myself to about a page where I'll give an editor's note and frame it for you. I'll tell you a little bit of what was my perception of this person. And I just give you tidbits that they wouldn't say about themselves. Now, let me ask you, is there a common theme that you find that runs through all of these stories? Here's the common theme. Everyone needs to work. You know, you think we need to work because we need a paycheck, right? The average person spends 90,000 hours of their life, a third of their life working. We have 7.7 billion people on this planet right now. Over 5 billion of us are actively working. Maybe we don't want to be, (laughs) but every single person I've interviewed has wanted to provide for their families, has wanted the dignity of being able to earn some sort of paycheck, even gig jobs, even in the informal sector, that feeling of being able to produce 
And I'll tell you, from all of the narrators, all except one told me, if I had all the time and money in the world, I would be doing what I'm doing right now. Only one narrator would not be doing the work that he's doing now. And that was the first man that I interviewed in Dhaka, Bangladesh. He's a rickshaw puller, which means that he pedals a bicycle taxi in the dusty, packed streets of Dhaka. Muhammad it was, is in his early 50s, and he's exhausted. He said his body is spent. He cycles about 12 hours a day in order to eke out money for two meals for his family. And he's the only one who said, no, this is not the profession I would have chosen in a million years. I would have liked to be a banker. He oh, said, when oh, I was a kid, man. I was very good with numbers. But because of the civil war in Bangladesh, he had to drop out of school at age 10. His father was killed and he ended up being the provider for the family. So he began work as a migrant farmer. And this is, Muhammad haunts me. I think about what it would have been like for him if he had been able to go to school and become a banker. But instead, he's out there on the rickshaw. And what he's done is he's given his children a chance to go to school. He found a free school that's one of our education partners called Jago. And his children are going through elementary and high school and planning to, for college and planning to be, one's going to be a doctor and then the other's going to be a dentist. And Muhammad says, it's too late for me but I want them to have the life that they want. So it's really like he sacrificed his passion and his desire to be able to give his children the life. And we do see that. We see that especially uh, with immigrant parents where they might come to the U.S. and maybe have left a position as a surgeon and will work as a janitor. That's right. But they're doing it because they want their their children and all the children that follow those children to have the opportunity that we have here. This is a key part of sort of the, the spine of America and the character of America, which is this diverse immigrant story. It's also something that we see all over the world is that parents want a better life for their children. This is why we in my skis family believe that we're all kin. But I'm glad you asked me about these sort of key learnings that have that have woven together through all the chapters. And the theme is sort of well, how can you be happy at work, right? So 75% of people in the world who are not working in agriculture are working gig jobs like Muhammad. They have mm -hmm. no choice. They're selling, they're hawking goods on the side of the road or they're migrant farmers. So how can you be happy if you don't get to choose? The first way there, I, I, I think there are probably five ways to be happy at work. One is if it's possible you do look for a job that fulfills you. You look for a job like the one that you have where you're writing and you're interviewing people and you get joy from the process, whether it's building things or serving people. If at all possible, you find your gift. If you can't work that full time, then you look, if at all possible, for a side gig, even if it's a volunteer a couple hours a month or being an artist a couple of hours creating music, what expresses who you are at the depths of your being. I think the second way to, to look for happiness at work is to, to be open to connecting with your coworkers. So what I found in collecting these stories is that oftentimes people's team at work knew them better than the team at home. Oh, it becomes your family. Absolutely. It really does. And so there's a strength and a sort of co-support that's possible there, not with everyone, 
but to look for that and lean on it because it is such a huge portion of your time and your life. And so part of that is, is my third point is to share the story of your job. How incredible would it be if grandmas and grandpas in our society would tell us about the work they did when they were a kid? My father growing up on a farm in Kentucky and, you know, he has memory loss now. And sometimes those are the only stories he remembers. But how wonderful if the people in your life knew a lot more in depth what you do and how it impacts you rather than just who you are in the function of their life. What I found was I would sit down with people and I would start with a set of 25 standard questions you know, what do you do? What skills does it take? What was your educational background? What's been your best day, your worst day, etc.? What kind of money do you make? What would you do if you didn't need to earn money? But every narrator would veer far off topic and end up just unfolding in front of me and becoming quite intimate about whom they love and what traumatized them as a child or what they fear now or what they vision for our world. And so I think this is true for us as well in conversation. The story of our work becomes the revealing of who we are as a human person. Well, it's so much of what we do. I mean, our work does become us and, and vice versa a lot of times, if, especially when we're passionate about it. That's right. That's right. And so you're, you're leading into my fourth point, which is, as much as possible to bring a certain mindfulness to our work. I was really struck last week, I was in a sushi restaurant for lunch and there was a man sweeping the floor and wiping the tables and he moved slowly and he moved as if it were a privilege to be there, wiping the tables and refilling water glasses and asking, would you like more? And there was just something about the humility of him that it, it, it looked almost like a sort of a dharma, a sort of a, a meditative, humble service rather than just, oh, I got to sweep the darn floor again. And I wanted to remember him, the vision of him and bring it home to my piles of papers that need to be cleaned out and the dishes that need to be washed and the laundry and the cleaning. I wanted to approach my work, whether it's high-level creative work or whether it's just all the grunt work that the other 95% of our jobs and, and keep this mindfulness with me that he exuded. Yes, and because then, your approach really can change your reality when you do it with appreciation and you do it with intention. That really does change your experience. That's right. I think it's also a, a keeping in mind that we all need each other. Uh, we need our undertaker. We need our garbage collector. We need our neurosurgeons. We need our journalists. Society can't really function well without everyone doing their small piece. And that if we honor ourselves in doing that small piece, instead of worrying, should I be doing something else or something more, knowing that, that this is our contribution to the people around us, even if they don't see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then, then you, had, think, you said you had one more thing, the, the yeah, fifth the, thing. And the what is that? Point, the fifth point would be as much as possible, and I know this is uh, hard for most of us, is to find a work-life balance so that you're getting up once an hour and taking a little walk around or you're standing working or you put a treadmill under your desk or you um, get outside for lunch or you don't take your work home with you when you go home to dinner with your family, 
just any small ways that you can be present at work and then not be present not at work will recharge your batteries and help you to come back the next day as a fully engaged, honorable, and humble uh, servant to the world, which is what we're all here for. What I found is that people need to work for purpose. Even if we were all, let's say we all had universal basic income and it was a huge amount, I guarantee you we would still find ways to give. We would still find creative art to express. We'd build things. We would serve each other. We'd take care of our elderly and our sick because we have to be connected. It's too isolating not to be part of the world as a working person. It's the glue that holds us together. It also happens to be our common denomination as a human species with in a world like now that's so divisive and you feel like there are, people are focusing on tribalism and what separates us and what's different about you and me, work is our common ground. We all work. We know what it's like to stay up late getting a project done. We know what it's like to have a headache or backache and work through it, to have nobody appreciating what we're doing. We also know what it's like to have a really inspiring boss or to have a great day where we are applauded for what we do. And so this is this universal factor. And that's why my job is the place we come together to talk about not just our work, but our humanity. Suzanne, this is a great series that you've started. We're going to tell our listeners how they can uh, find it. We're going to link on our website to give them a page to go to where they can purchase your book and learn more about the Skis Foundation and, and the work that you're doing. Suzanne, uh, thank you. Thank you again for the work that you're doing and, uh, again, for sitting down with us today. Nice to meet your readers, and thank you, Paula. That was Suzanne Skies, author of the book series, My Job, People at Work Around the World. If you'd like to learn more about her books, download a free chapter of her most recent book, or learn more about the Skies Family Foundation, please visit us at livehappynow.com. Of course, we hope you're already a subscriber to Live Happy Now, but if you're not, you can find us on the Pandora Podcast Network, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Just look for us on your favorite platform, then hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. That is all we have time for this week. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one. <laughs>